And as we kind of get started here, I want to introduce you to someone very special to me this morning. Uh, he's actually one of my personal heroes in the faith, and uh, I read his autobiography a few years ago, and he just has a remarkable story, uh, and really an absolute, just a testimony to God's power and provision. So the man that I want to introduce you to, his name is George Mueller. I think his picture should be up there. There he is. What a fine-looking guy he is. Uh, and so you might have noticed he looks like he maybe lived a long time ago. That's because he did. He was born in Germany in 1805. And as a young man, he moved to England. And while he was in England, God put it on his heart to build an orphanage. But the thing is, he didn't have any money to build an orphanage. And so, okay, this happens sometimes, right? God puts something in your heart, and you don't have the means to do it. So for most of us, we say, okay... God, you want me to, to build this orphanage. Okay, well, I'm going to uh, pray about it, and then I'm going to go, you know, uh, form like an exploratory committee, and I'm going to go do some fundraising, you know, maybe sell some, some brownies or something. That's, you know, the way we do it. We're going to try to raise this money and do this work. Uh, but that's not how George did it. He, uh, he took a bit of a different track, uh, tact. He said, you know what? I think God is telling me that I just need to pray about this. And so that is what he did. His his plan A was prayer. His plan B was prayer. His plan C was prayer. That's all he did. He didn't ask for anybody for any money. He didn't tell anybody. And that might sound crazy, but he raised money that way. In fact, he raised a lot of money that way. He funded the orphanage strictly through prayer, and that's it. And then he did many, many other works and, and ministries and supported uh, missionaries all over the world, and all of it. All of it was through prayer. He didn't ask a single person for a single penny his entire life. Uh, so there was many times when he would do this. And so, for example, like when they had this orphanage, they would uh, be out of money and say, okay, well, we're going to go pray about this need. And then they would go check the offering box in the back and they would find that someone had donated just enough money to cover that expense. Or sometimes they would be in prayer and there would be like a knock on the door and someone would actually be standing there at the door with a check for the amount of money they needed that they were just praying about. Crazy stuff like this happened to him all the time. In fact, one of my favorite stories about him was one particular morning, they're, they're in the orphanage, uh, it's full of kids, and there is no food. So they wake the kids up, it's breakfast time, no food, but George says, okay, well, we're going to go ahead and sit down in the dining area. So that he sits all the kids down at the table, and he starts praying, and he starts thanking God for the food they're about to eat. Okay, now mind you, there is no food that to about to eat. It does not exist. There is nothing in the building. But George says, that's all right, we're going to pray about this. He prays, he thanks God for the food. And right when he finishes praying, there's a knock at the door. And it's the local baker. He's come with enough bread to feed everyone their meal for the day. And they go, oh, that's pretty cool. Well, it gets cooler because then as, while they're handing out the bread... Uh, they get another knock on the door, and it's the milkman, and it turns out the milkman's cart broke down right in front of the orphanage that morning, and now he can't sell his milk. So, hey, I've got all this milk. Do you want it? I just, I love that story, because here it is. George is just saying, you know what? God's going to provide, and he did in some, in some miraculous ways. And so by the end of George Mueller's life, he actually raised over $140 million in today's money, uh, just through prayer, and that is it. And if you think that he was exaggerating or maybe, you know, padding the number to kind of like show off, he wasn't. If you read his autobiography, uh, he was very detail-oriented 
lots of uh, tables and charts, and he actually tracks his giving, the giving he received, down to the penny per day, per year. So you can just do the math yourself if you doubt him. Uh, so it was just an incredible story. He had almost superhuman faith in this regard. He believed that God would provide, and then he went out and acted like God would actually provide. Like, how crazy is that? And now before you get worried, uh, don't worry. I don't think that everyone is called to, to live like George Mueller lived. Um, there are other ways that God provides. So like, let's, it's okay. I'm not going to go down that route. But the thing about George Mueller was he understood that when you walk in faith and when you walk in obedience, God provides. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. And we're going to look at, an, at another story um, about this kind of faith. This time it's the story of a widow who comes to the prophet Elisha with a very serious problem. And so the story is found in 2 Kings chapter 4. It'll be up there on the screen. Uh, we'll read it and then we'll dig in. So in 2 Kings 4, verse 1, we read, Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried out to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord, but the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. And Elisha said to her, What shall I do for you? Tell me, what have you in the house? And she said, your servant has nothing in the house at all except for a jar of oil. And then he said, okay, go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels and not too few. And then go in and shut the door behind yourself and your sons and pour into all these vessels. And when one is full, set it aside. So she went from him and shut the door behind herself and her sons. And as she poured, they brought the vessels to her. So when the vessels were full, she said to her son, Okay, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, There is not another. And then the oil stopped flowing. So she came and told the man of God, and he said, Go and sell the oil and pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on the rest. Okay, so interesting story. Uh, I really like this story. Uh, it's kind of a hidden gem in the Old Testament. Um, and the main character here is this woman who uh, the text tells us is the wife of one of the sons of the prophets. Or if you look at another translation, it might say the wife of one of the company of the prophets. So just to kind of set the stage, who were, these, who, who were the company of the prophets? Who were the sons of the prophets? Well, this is an ancient association of men who are either uh, prophets in training or prophets working under the direction and guidance of the head prophet, who would have been Elisha at that time. So they formed a company, and it appears they, they lived together and ministered together in the same place and prophesied um, under the direction of Elisha. So this is kind of the group we're seeing here, the, this group of men who are, who are working under Elisha. And one of the men in this group of prophets has died, and he's left behind a wife and two sons. And unfortunately, we don't know how the man died. We don't know how old he was or what the circumstances were of his death. But it appears that it was premature and unexpected, and he's left his wife with a big problem. And the problem was when her husband died, he was in debt. And so again, we're, we're left into the dark. We don't know why he was in debt. Uh, nothing in the, in the text tells us why. It's possible that it was out of some great need. It's possible that this man actually took out a, a loan and had a plan to pay it back, but unfortunately he passed away before he could do it. Uh, we also know during this time in Israel, there were plenty of rulers who did not like the prophets. They did not follow God. Uh, Jezebel would be, would be a great example. Jezebel really didn't like Elisha's uh, predecessor, um, Elijah. So it could have been that 
the prophets were being persecuted. We just don't know. Those are some of the reasons why this man might have wound up in debt. But when he dies, this puts the widow in a very bad position. So it's bad enough, right, that she has to mourn the loss of her husband. But now she has creditors coming after her to, for, about this debt that, in all honesty, she probably had very little to do with in the first place. Um, and now normally at this time, what would happen is if you were a woman and your husband died, you would go to your extended family and then they would kind of take you in and they would support you. Uh, because, again, in, the, in this society, there was just, just about no way that you as a single woman would be able to, you know, make ends meet. The idea of a, of a working single mom, that was about 3,000 years in the future still, did not have that option available to her. But it appears that she didn't have this support network either, so either she didn't have any extended family or the family she did have wasn't in any better position than she was to be able to help. And so, just to put the cherry on top, she's got all this that she's dealing with, and she's got a couple sons, and they're not even old enough, it, it appears, to go out and get a job and help. So, now you've got this poor woman. She's got no husband, no extended family, no children who are of working age, no way to get a job, no source of possible income, and she has a debt that she cannot pay. So, do you think that she felt hopeless in that situation? Now, when it came to the legal system in Israel at that time, there was really no such thing as bankruptcy either. She couldn't just write off the debt and start over, you know, have a bad credit score for seven years and then, you know, move on. That didn't, ha didn't exist either. So she didn't have the money to pay, which she didn't. There was really only one thing left to do, and that's exactly what this creditor is trying to do, and that's to give her sons as indentured servants as payment for the debts. In other words, work off that debt over a period of time. And we might look at that today and say, wow, that seems pretty inhumane. Uh, but that was actually in the law of the time that you could do that. If you were a creditor and the, and the person couldn't pay, you could basically uh, enslave them or their children for up to seven years to pay off that debt. And then after that time, they, they would be free. And unfortunately, you know, we look at the story and, and we feel for this woman, but we know that this isn't a really even a rare story even today. All over the world, we can look out and, and see people just in extreme poverty with just no way out and no way to pay their debts, no way to get food or, or shelter, um, and, and it's a horrible situation. Um, and we may not be in that situation, at least most of us here in America today, but we still have situations where we find ourselves that we say, you know what, there is no way out for me. I do not know what to do. Uh, for many of us, maybe it's the weight of a crushing financial burden or a crushing financial debt. Maybe it's losing a job. I remember back when the stock market tanked in 2007, 2008, um, many people's retirement funds literally were cut in half overnight. And so I remember going into work with people who were planning to retire in the extremely near future one day, and then all of a sudden the next day they're looking at working for five or ten more years. And boy, that was tough for, for a lot of people. Uh, but this story of this widow, this story here, actually reminds me of something that happened to, to my wife and I. So when we were first married, uh, you're not going to believe this, we were broke. I know that's like a rare thing, right? But we had no money. And actually, my wife had been let go from her job about a month before our wedding. So we had to deal with that. Um, I was in school, I was going to seminary, and I was working at a running store, which is a great job, uh, except for the pay part. I got paid $8 an hour. Yeah, in 2006, so that was 
not a lot of money at the time. So yeah, we were broke. You know, no money, no money in the bank account. Uh, we'd been living off of credit cards. Now, that is not a good strategy at all. But when you're young and don't know any better, that's you know, the strategy you pick sometimes. I wouldn't recommend it. It was tough. And I remember the low point, for me anyway, was going to the grocery store, which was just a couple minutes from our apartment. And I thought, okay, I've got to pick up food for a couple of days. So I went and got you know, 30 40 bucks worth of food, whatever, whatever it was. And I got to the cashier, and she rang me up. And then I put my credit card in the little credit card machine, and I wouldn't take it, right? And it said decline. I'm like, what do you mean decline? You can't decline a credit card. <laughs> That's weird. Okay. So I don't have any other way to pay, so I have to leave the food, you know, with the cashier, which is a, another, you know, humbling experience, and, and get out to my car and go home. And I was like, man, what happened? You know, like, what's wrong with my credit card? So I called the little 1-800 number on the back, and that was the day that I learned that you can max out a credit card. <laughs> So we basically had no money, no credit. Uh, I think I, I looked and saw, and we had, I think, $50 to our name, I believe. Uh, and that's all we had. And so, the, you know, there we are. We, we're, we're young, we're newly married, and I'm sitting there going, what am I going to do? How are we going to make ends meet? How am I going to pay rent? How am I going to buy food? I don't, even, I don't have any money. I can't even buy food for like three days. What am I going to do? So that's kind of my personal tie-in with, with the widow, and I'm sure some of you have similar stories. And so if we think about uh, the story, what does the widow do in this situation? Well, she goes to Elisha, the man of God. So instead of trying to figure out a solution on her own, she appeals to Elisha for help. Now, as, as I mentioned, Elisha was a top prophet in Israel. He was chosen by Elijah to be his successor, and he would have been you know, the head over the company of the prophets, as we talked about uh, but more than that, he was really God's representative to Israel. And so this woman, in effect, was, was reaching out to God in the way that she knew how. And so she comes to Elisha. She explains her situation. Uh, the text says that she cries out. So she's desperate. She's probably weeping and wailing and crying for help as she's telling Elisha that her husband, one of the prophets, is dead and that, and that these creditors are coming to take her sons away. And so Elisha no doubt sees this woman distraught before, her, before him, and he asks her, okay, what, what shall I do for you? Tell me, what do you have? Like, what can we work with here? And she says, well, I don't have anything except this, this jar of oil. And now the Hebrew word here that, that's used for jar, it actually comes from the Hebrew word that means anointing. And so you get this idea that this jar is, is a small jar that's filled with anointing oil, uh, which you don't use very much of. And so we're really talking about a jar with maybe several ounces of oil as opposed to some, you know, large vat or container. So it's not like when you're walking uh, in Costco down the row and you see like the giant vats of vegetable oil that they use for the, fr- I guess they use for the fryers, I don't know. Okay, that is not what we're talking about here. We're talking about a little tiny jar of oil that you could hold in your hand, holds a couple ounces of oil. So this is not a lot uh, to work with. And so now here's the situation, right? You've got this, this widow in front of Elisha. She's in great financial need. She's probably weeping and, and, you know, on the ground in tears. No way to pay her debts. He says, okay, what do you have? What do you got? Is there anything at all you can, you can use to pay this debt? And she goes, well, no, I've got this small jar of oil. That's my only possession in life.
How are we doing? Are we on? All right, cool. I'm going to try not to touch that again. So <laughs> Elisha looks at her and tells her, go, and get, go to your neighbors, get as many vessels as you can, go home and shut your door, and then fill up all the vessels with oil. Okay, so I don't know about you, but if I'm standing there and Elisha is having this conversation and that comes out of his mouth, I'm probably going to pull him aside. Like, dude, wh- what? Like, what are you telling this woman? Like, f- for real, man, this is crazy. Like, this ain't going to work. This poor woman's lost everything and you're telling her to do what? Right? Like, this is ludicrous. You cannot tell people to do this kind of thing, Elisha. Because <laughs> let's face it, like, on the face of it, this plan is, is nuts, right? This is not going to work. This widow is supposed to fill up all these vessels from a single small jar. And by the way, the word vessels here in the text, uh, it's actually the Hebrew word that just kind of means like things or stuff or like, you know, items. It's kind of a very generic word. So Elisha is saying like, you know, pots, pans, jars, cups, bowls, I don't care. If it can hold liquid, borrow it. Just get as many as you can and start pouring. Uh, but of course, there's an issue here. I, I, now, I'm not a trained scientist, but uh, I'm pretty sure it doesn't matter how many empty jars I have, that's not going to help my oil situation, right? That's, that's not the answer. <laughs> so I think it would have been easy for, uh, you know, someone like me to pull Elisha aside and say, you know, what are you doing? This is nuts. It would have been easy for the widow to say, I can't believe that you're trying to do this to me. You're trying to manipulate me in my time of need. I'm not doing this, Elisha. This is nuts. But the, the crazy thing is she doesn't do that. She simply obeys. And so in doing this, she becomes this great example for us about obedience and faith. And that's really the reason I wanted to talk about this particular story this morning. Because it points out that faithfulness and obedience are two of the most important values in the kingdom of God. Uh, And it really ties in with what James has been telling us for these past several months, living and loving like Jesus, right? He's rightly stressing this idea that Jesus wants us and actually expects us to do the things he's told us to do, to walk in faith and to walk in obedience. And I would argue that even more than that, it's not just that Jesus wants us to do this thing, it's that he made us to do these things. That's why he made us. That's what Paul tells us in Ephesians 2.10. He says, for we are his workmanship. We were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So that means that this verse, according according to Paul, according to the New Testament, we, you, me, all of us, we were created for these good works that God prepared for us in advance. So there are kingdom-building opportunities that God has literally made, especially for you and for me, and, but we actually have to do them. Like, that's, that's the key part, right? We have to do them. And it takes faith, and it takes obedience. And that's what God asks of us. That's what God asked through Elisha of the widow. And so when Elisha tells this woman what to do, she's presented with this choice. Do I trust in God's faith and provision? Do I walk in obedience, or do I not? Again, she could have listened to Elisha and said, that's ridiculous. I'm not doing that. But instead, even in her anguish and in her hurt and her hopelessness, she made the choice to trust. And, and by the way, think about this for a minute. Imagine a conversation with your neighbor about this, right? You're the widow. You're knocking on the door. Hey, uh, can I borrow you all of your pots and pans? Why? Well, I'm going to 
fill them up with oil from this little jar. Yeah, I, I know there's not enough oil. Yeah, I, I still need them, please. But I, can you imagine? And then she has to do that with all her neighbors. Um, I've knocked on a lot of doors, and it's already awkward, but to imagine, like, leading with that. It's just, people probably would have thought, like, oh, this poor woman, her grief is driving her insane. You know, we'll humor her, let her have these, you know, these pots and pans. And then, imagine she gets all of these pots, pans, cups, or whatever, walk, and then you walk into her house, and it's just full of empty pots and pans and jars and lids, and all over every counter, all over the floor, and they're all empty, and you'd probably be like, I, there's something wrong with this woman. I'm just going to go ahead and walk right back out, right? Because <laughs> it's just a crazy situation. But that's the thing, right, is sometimes God asks us to do things that might seem counterintuitive at first. They might seem like they don't make sense to us. We look out and say, I don't understand God. Uh, now, I'm not talking about, you know, the, the plainly dumb or dangerous ideas, okay? If God tells you to quit your job and go try out for the Seahawks to replace Russell Wilson, Okay, I'm not sure he really told you that. Could we talk this one through? <laughs> uh, you know, though, I'm, I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about clearly unbiblical ideas like, you know, God told me in a dream to go blow all my money in Vegas. Okay, no, he didn't. He didn't tell you that. <laughs> I'm not talking about this. Uh, but, you know, if you follow Jesus and you follow God, you know what I'm talking about, right? It's those, it's those impressions of the Spirit. It's that still small voice that says, hey, you need to go talk to that person. Hey, you need to go step out in faith in this ministry that I have for you. You need to go apologize to your wife. You need to go give to this ministry even though you think you can't afford it. Right? It's those kinds of impressions. Um, and if you felt them before, you, you know the difference. I don't have to explain it. You know the difference. God impressed on George Mueller to raise money for an orphanage without asking for money and just through prayer. God told Abraham to leave his home and to go to another country. Which country did, Abraham, did God tell Abraham to go to? Yeah, just start walking west, right? Like, okay, and he did it. <laughs> um, it kind of reminds me of, uh, of my own story. So my wife and I, we uh, moved from Denver to Seattle in 2012 because we felt that God was leading us and directing us to move here. Now here's the deal. I'd never been to Seattle before. I didn't know anybody in Seattle. Didn't have any connections in Seattle didn't have a job in Seattle, um, didn't, I didn't even know it was hilly here, and that's how much I did not know about, I knew it rained, that's, that is literally what I knew about Seattle, but I went because God was saying, go, and I'm so glad that I did, because this is home, this is my home now. So why does God ask these things of us? Why does he sometimes ask us to do things that, at face value, just don't add up? And I think that the answer is that when you step out in obedience like this, it grows your faith. This is how Charles Spurgeon put it uh, as he was talking about this passage in his commentary. He says, God takes care to deliver his servants in ways that exercise their faith. He would not have them be little in faith, for faith is the wealth of heavenly life. Right? That's a good quote. I like that. I'm glad you like that too, Esther. So when you trust in God, when you step out in faith, that makes us more mature in our faith. And that's what Spurgeon was getting at. And I think that's what God is getting at. When you are faithful, when you're obedient, when you, uh, that's how you understand that when you follow Jesus in these newer and richer and more beautiful ways, that's, that's how you get there. And that's a big thing that I've learned over the past couple of years uh, in my own life. Uh, 
So there's this experiential component to faith that you can't learn by just reading the Bible or praying or attending a worship service or being part of a small group. And don't get me wrong now, because those are all great things. I do all those things. You should do all those things. Those are foundational aspects to the Christian faith. But when you build a foundation, why do you build a foundation? To build on top of it, right? Like that's step one. Then uh, the idea is to continue to grow and do greater things. But the truth is, you can be a nice and a good Christian, and you can do all the things you're supposed to do, according to our culture, and yet you can still miss out on a huge part about what it means to follow Jesus. Let me give you an example here. So imagine that you're a soldier in the army, and so you spend all of your time preparing for battle. You've read all the manuals. You've even memorized some of the manuals, right? You clean your gun every day, you do PT, you do your combat training, your barracks is spotless, you could bounce a quarter off your bed, like you are like an A-plus soldier. You are ready to go. And then one day, the commanding officer comes in and says, okay, today is the day, pack up, we're going off to fight a battle. And then, then you're like, well, wait a second, what do you mean go out and fight a battle? I don't, isn't it kind of dangerous to go fight a battle? Like, I might get hurt, you know, someone might shoot at me, I don't like that. Um, you know what, I think I'm going to do, I'm going to actually, I'm going to stay in the barracks, I'm going to keep training, I'm going to keep reading my manual and memorizing it, and that's what I'm going to do. So thanks anyway, but no thanks. Right, like you would not do that to your commanding officer. You would wind up court-martialed in the brig, you know, disarmable discharge, because that's crazy. When you join the military, the idea is to go and fight. But that's what we do when we believe this lie that following Jesus is about nothing more than going to church and reading your Bible and, you know, being a good person. Again, there's nothing wrong with those things. It's just that they're the foundation for much more. So with Christianity, with following Jesus, right, that's meant to be lived out in faith and obedience, and you're not going to find all that following Jesus can be until you actually start doing the things that he asks us to do. And so the widow here in 2 Kings is really a role model for us in this regard. Elisha gave her instructions from God, and she followed them. She faithfully obeyed. So she goes home, she shuts the door, she starts pouring out oil. And as she did this, the oil just keeps going and going and going until all of these borrowed vessels were filled. And the text tells us that as soon as that last jar was filled, the oil stopped flowing. And we don't know how many vessels she borrowed, but I I think it must have been a lot. Because after this happens, she goes back and tells Elisha what happens, and he says, okay, go and sell that oil, pay your debts, and live on the rest. So it must have been a pretty substantial amount of oil because she could pay off her debts, and it could sustain her her family for a couple of years until uh, her boys could, could go to work. And so here, it's really interesting because we have an example in Scripture where trusting God literally pays off with, like, cold, hard cash. Kind of cool. God took what, the, what little amount the widow had, and because she was faithful, because she obeyed, he made much of it. She steps out in faith and obedience, and God provides. All right, so let's take a look about uh, what we can take away from the story. So what does the application today look like for us? And I think there's at least three truths that we can pull out and we can apply to our lives. So the first truth is that God's provision often comes after we step out in faith and not before. Right? The widow had to go out and borrow vessels first, and then she had to take them home and arrange them 
And only after she was ready with all that preparation, then God's blessing came. So God had a plan to provide for her all along, but she had to take the action to be prepared to accept that blessing. And so sometimes God says, hey, I want you to do this thing, and I want you to trust me for the outcome. And I don't know what that is for you. Maybe that's having a conversation with your neighbor. Maybe that's inviting someone to church. Maybe that's starting an evangelistic conversation with the barista when you get your coffee. Uh, Maybe it's a career change. Maybe it's giving more of your money away than you're comfortable doing. Again, I don't know what it, it might be for you. But whatever the case, God wants us to step out in faith and trust him for the outcome because those are the kinds of actions that make us more like Christ. Those are the kind of actions that bring glory to him. But we have to decide to trust him first, right? We have to be willing to take that step of faith. And we have to decide to live out of this truth that God loves us and that his course of action for us is always the best course of action. And I know that's easy to say, and I know that it's hard to do. But the more we trust him, the more we find him to be good, to be a good father that he says he is. So God's provision often comes after we step out in faith and not before. The second truth that I think the story brings is that God's provision often comes in proportion to our faith. The text tells us that the widow uh, borrowed enough vessels that the excess oil oil could be paid, uh, sold, paid her debts, and she would still have money to live off of. But here's a question to consider. If she had gathered more vessels, would she have received more oil? Or if she had gathered fewer vessels, would she have received less oil? Oh, that's an interesting question, isn't it? And I think the question for us is, are there areas of our lives where we could be blessed more by God if we asked him for it? And I'm not talking about health and wealth stuff here, just be clear. This is not prosperity gospel. I'm not saying that if you had just more faith in God, then he would make you a millionaire or, or give you a mansion I'm not saying that at all. And I'm not saying either that if you had more faith, you wouldn't have gotten sick or your dad wouldn't have died. Like None of that stuff. That is not the true gospel. And even in this story, it's not true because the woman still lost her husband, even though God provided. And honestly, I doubt that she became the richest woman in town after this event. I doubt that she started like a new multi-level marketing oil business. Right? That's not what happened, right? She had enough money to live on. So this isn't a prosperity gospel story, even though some people might read it that way. This is a God-provides-what-we-need kind of story. So what I'm saying here, what I'm trying to get at, is that I think we could all use to be bolder in our God-honoring requests. Right? Like, how much more spiritual provision could we have in our lives if we just asked for it? How much more strength and hope and joy and peace might we experience if we ask for it from God with as much passion and desire as we root for the Seahawks or debate politics on Facebook. And really, from going from like an individual to a corporate idea, how much more of an impact could our church have right here in our community if we really, truly asked of God and then prepared and committed ourselves for the answer? And I think the answer is probably more than, than we think. So the third truth I think we can pull from this story is that God's provision comes when we walk in faith and obedience. Um, I'm here to tell you, trusting in God is is often hard work. I'm also here to tell you, waiting on the Lord is not an excuse to be lazy. 
And in fact, this is one of the stories that confirms the principle that God wants us to be co-workers with him. You'll find that actually in 1 Corinthians 3, 9, where Paul tells us that. And by the way, do you know what the Greek word for co-workers, do you know what that means? It means co-workers, right? It's just literally the Greek word with and the Greek word work and smash together. So it's not some kind of deal where the translators or interpreters, you know, made some kind of decision and glossed over the Greek. No, it means that God actually wants us and expects us and desires to work together with us to grow his kingdom. Which is amazing because God doesn't need us to do that, does he? He could do everything by himself, yet he chooses to want to work with us. Now, how amazing is that? The God of the universe says, yeah, I could do it by myself, but I'd rather do it with you. Like, that's an amazing honor and privilege. So God created us to do good works. We looked at that passage earlier. But that means we actually have to roll up our sleeves and get our hands dirty and do the work. But the great news is when we do that, when we really dig in to building God's kingdom together with him, we find that, that he gives us the strength, he gives us the wisdom, he gives us the endurance to get the job done. So I think in the end, this is both a challenging story and an inspiring story. It's challenging in the sense that there's always more faith that we could take hold of. I don't think we ever reach the end. It's always a growth journey. And it's challenging in that it's a reminder that faith involves really actually stepping out, really actually doing the things Jesus said to do, really trusting God for the results. But it's, it's inspiring in that this is something we can all do with the power of the Holy Spirit. We can all step out in faith. If a grieving widow who has nothing and no hope can step out in faith, then I think maybe I can do that too. Maybe you can do that. We can all experience God's provision in this way. Um, and as we transition to the Lord's Supper, we have another example of God's provision for us. And we're reminded through this miracle we just looked at, uh, through the widow and the oil, about the miracles of Christ. So just as the oil was multiplied exponentially, Jesus would go on to, mul to multiply bread and, and turn water into wine. And so when we come to the communion, when we come to the table, we're reminded that through the bread and the wine, Jesus was and is the embodiment of God's miraculous provision. Yeah, he turned water into wine, that's true. He miraculously fed the multitudes on more than one occasion. He healed the sick, he even raised the dead. But all these signs and wonders, they pointed to the ultimate act of God's provision, which was Jesus' death on the cross. So as we come to the table, we should take time to reflect on Jesus' death. And we should take time to remember that it's really only through Jesus and his crucifixion that we can even come to God to begin with. Jesus paid the penalty for our sins by his blood. He gave up his body so that we might be saved. And this, of course, is a central truth that uh, our faith is based upon. And we can't come to God any other way than through the grace and the mercy provided by Jesus on the cross. And so the Bible tells us that, that before we go uh, and take the elements of communion, we should pause. We should examine ourselves in light of the truth of Jesus and his death and his resurrection. And so I want to just do that real quick uh, this morning. I want to pause for just a few seconds to give us time to just think, to just think about our last week, about our lives in general, and to say, okay, is there anything that you need to ask forgiveness for? Is there anything you need to do to get right with God?
Um, and this isn't sitting in the principal's office waiting to get in trouble. This is going to your loving father and saying, God, I messed up. I need to get right with you. And God's saying, I know. I forgive you and I love you. So let's just take a few minutes to, uh, to do that. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul writes that on the night uh, when he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread, and when he, had, when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Would you pray with me? And band, you guys can go ahead and come on up. Father God, we come before you and, and we realize that we're a lot like this widow. We often have so little to offer and we have so many things in our life that we're trying to deal with but when we come to you in faith and obedience, you make much of our limited resources. So God, this week, would you help us to walk in obedience and in faith as individuals, as a church? And God, we just thank you for providing for us. We thank you for making salvation available for us. We thank you that through Jesus, you give us the strength to follow you. So God, we love you. Amen.